Happy week before St. Patty's Day, everyone, and welcome to 2022's third episode of She Said, She Said. I hope you have fun and frolic planned for the 17th. I'm co-host Lena Stagg, the author of the Recipe Record series of rock and roll cookbooks. And if you're planning to dine in on St. Patrick's Day, then you must get my Recipe Record 60s edition cookbook where you can find an amazing recipe for no Doris Irish soda bread and a bit of the times they are a change in butter to go along with it. Each recipe is innovative, delicious, and easy to prepare. And hey, to make each dish just a little more with it, you can put a, your playlist of songs that go with the recipe as you whip up something good. So just heat up the oven and ask your favorite listening device hmm. to play some suggested songs. And within seconds, you'll have a ready-made party. We love those parties. So for example, one of the songs I've suggested to a company no Doris Irish Soda Bread is Isla's St. Clair's Irish Bagpipes. Such a wonderful, wonderful tune. Will you like it? Well, let me just say, you're welcome. <laughs> Check out the Recipe Records 60s edition, as well as the Recipe Records tribute to the Beatles, the Recipe Records nod to the Rolling Stones entitled the Rolling Scones, Let's Spend the Bite Together, and my original Recipe Records cookbook. You can find those all at lenastag.com. Oh, yes. Top of the morning to you. And I'm into that. And here it is. <laughs> In itself, Recipe Records, the 60s edition, and it's even green. How, yeah. about, how about that? This is a great cookbook. All of the recipe records cookbooks. I love, 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 love. And I already went to the store and got my ingredients to make my soda bread and my the times they are a change in butter to go along with it. We're nice. going to have our celebration just a little bit early because my husband's going to be out of town. And I would say of all of Lena's followers and fans, Rand Kessler is her number one. <laughs> if he finds out we're at recipe records, we're having recipe <laughs> records, he gets all excited. So it, it, this is a great book. It has all the recipes that your mom used to make for you back in the 60s, like come see about tea and cool jerk chicken. And let me see you shake your tail feather. And I know it's only crescent rolls, but I like them, like them. <laughs> great nice. book, great nice. book. I am Jude Sutherland Kessler, Lana's trusty sidekick for low these many years, and the author of the John Lennon series. It's a proposed nine-volume series. We're up to volume five and working right away on the next one. Uh, we started, of course, on John's birthday in 1940. We've made it all the way up through his teen years, sad, sad, tragic, formative years into the 1961-63 where they, Brian Epstein takes them and they, they go on to the stage in Hamburg and Scotland and Ireland and England, but not yet in the U.S. 
in the third book. They do come to the U.S. and play Ed Sullivan in the fourth book, which is 1964. They rock the world. And this brand new book, which came out, and by the way, our guest today did one of the cover quotes for this book. This is Shades of Life, part one. I'm working on part two. This is 1965. And yes, you can use it to work out or you can go to the pit barbell club in Evansville that Lena owns if you want a real workout and the best place to work out. But in 65, they're making the film help and they are in EMI making its soundtrack. They are doing a world tour of France, Italy, and Spain. John put out his second book of poetry and prose, Spaniard in the Works. He and Cynthia moved down into Kenwood proper after an eight-month renovation, which to me is just a stamp in hell. If you want to really get a foretaste of hell, do a renovation in your house. And he does that along with all the other stuff. They have traveled the globe. They are exhausted as they get ready to leave for America on their 1965 world tour. And that's when the book ends. So if you want to join me for the journey through John's life, go to, and it's so strangely named, who would have named their website this? John Lennon series.com John Lennon series.com and you can read sample chapters now books one two and three are completely sold out so if you want to read those ebook format and it is the best way to read the books everybody should read the book in ebook because when it's got 4,000 footnotes when you get to a footnote you tap it the information because it's not just footnoted, it is annotated. There's lots of extra information in the back. You tap the footnote, the extra info comes up, you read it, you tap the footnote, it disappears. And that's really the best way to read them. Also, if you're reading the physical book, you have links at the end of every chapter. So if you've just read a Beatles interview, you tap the link, you can watch the interview. If you've read about a concert, you tap the link, you can watch the concert. You can't do that with the physical book. So I highly recommend one, two, and three on the ebook. Four, I still have some available. Five, I still have some available and working away on number six. So whew, that's a lot of stuff, Lena. <laughs> well, they are your fans are, just adore you and they adore your work and they can't wait for the next volume to come out. So um, if you have not read any of the John Lennon series, it's highly recommended. It is terrific, terrific uh, reading. And it's just like you're right next to John going through his life. So it's, it's heartwarming and it's heartbreaking at the same time. So be sure you pick those up or uh, pick up your ebook. Well, Jude and I are tickled green to have you all aboard for our St. Patty's Day show. Um, we are extremely thrilled to have one of our closest friends and one of our, our troublemaker friends, actually, <laughs> and on the show with us today. He's a lawyer, thank goodness, film advisor, and sometimes we all need a lawyer. And he's also the historian for the George Harrison family and distinguished author known far and wide as the rock and roll detective. Why, you may ask? Well, the answer is because he digs and probes and follows any trail to discover the answers to rock's greatest unsolved mysteries. I wish I was one of his agents. His first book was entitled Black Market Beatles, the story behind their last recordings, where his fascination with 
bootleg records and tapes led him to uncover some information about the Fab Four that the experts had never before realized. We'll ask him a bit more about that in a moment. Yeah, I definitely want to hear about that. Um, and does he have agents? Because maybe we could get a badge, you know, yeah. like the Wells Fargo badge. Oh, we can get deputized. I will say that our, our distinguished guest called me one day when I was in New Orleans and said, I'm working on this book called Mysteries in the Music Case Closed, which is his brand new book that he'll be talking about today. Do you have any suggestions for a John Lennon mystery? And I said, oh yeah. And I told him what I wanted to know. And after I told him there was a long pause, I thought maybe we'd been disconnected. And then he said, Jude, no one wants to know that but you. <laughs> So what I'm saying is mysteries in the music case clothes is rock and roll mysteries that you want to know about <laughs> that normal people want to know about. And there are things that people, some of them were sort of known, but never discussed. It was kind of a hush hush scenario. And others were things that was kind of you guessed there might be something there but you didn't really know and and he dug into it and found out there was absolutely something there mysteries in the music case close follows his extremely popular amazon bestseller book the beetle who vanished the story of jimmy nickel who sat in for the beatles um let's see june 3rd is when ringo collapsed and i think that ringo came back and joined the beatles on the 13th of june on their world tour so more than a week jimmy sat in with them they went to sweden and he performed with them there and then they went to hong kong and australia and new zealand and Jimmy was playing with them. Our guest today is so shrewd that he's the only one that ever figured out the correct spelling of Jimmy Nichols' name. <laughs> uh, for years, it had been wrong, and he sussed that out. This is a fantabulous book. If you haven't read it, you really need to, because is Jimmy Nichols still around? Hmm. Hmm. Well, you'll have to find out. So we do want to talk about this brand new book, and here it is. Mysteries in the Music Case Closed, gorgeous cover, even better, I hate to say it because the artist is fantabulous, but even better inside, and um, these are just, I'm not exaggerating when I say that the mysteries that are in here will really draw you in. Um, Lena is working at least, I'm going to be I'm going to be low on my number. I'm going to say she's working 13 hours a day, and that's low on my number. And she still read this book over the last two weeks, and I did too. And so we are so thrilled to welcome our friend who was recently on one of my favorite podcasts, Ranking the Beatles by Jonathan and Julia Priedis out of New Orleans. And when I heard him on that show, this is how... A-L-E-X-A, -E introduced him. She said, ranking the Beatles with Jim Berkingstock. So hello, <laughs> Jim Berkingstock. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Hello to Jude and Lena. It's so great to be back on your show. And it's just so great to see you guys. Because, you know, through COVID, we haven't been able to get together in person at, at these various uh, trade shows and conventions and things. So good to see you both. You too, you too. Fantastic. What did, we, what did we leave out of the introduction, Jim, that you've done that we didn't say? Oh, I don't know. We could go, we, we don't want to brag about Jim. I guess 
We do. Yeah. We want to brag about Jim. Well, I was the historical consultant on uh, Martin Scorsese's film about George Harrison, and Olivia Harrison hired me for that. I'm in the credits for the Get Back uh, movie that you're just uh, the Get Back film or uh, whatever you want to call it. The mm -hmm. Yeah, documentary that was Peter on Jack by Peter Jackson. Yeah, and actually I was hired because George Harrison told Neil Aspinall to hire me for that project way back like 22 or so years ago. So, wow. wow. And I worked on the Cirque du Soleil Love Show. I've worked on various box sets for the Beatles and George Harrison. And, uh, you know, I could go on. But and I, you did a uh, John Lennon documentary for what? which network? For Reels. Yeah, can you still get that? Can people still see that? Yeah, people can get that probably on Amazon Prime. Um, they probably have to rent it or something. I don't. I don't know that it's still airing. It might be, but I haven't been over to Reels lately uh, yeah. to see if it's still there. But yeah, I did a uh, documentary on John Lennon, Keith Richards, uh, Elvis Presley, and uh, I don't know some other some other rocker. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It's um, it's fun to do those things. You did a great job. I, I only saw the John Lennon one, but usually when they're jo they're John Lennon documentaries, I'm like going, "Oh no, wrong, wrong, wrong!" But I did not say you did a really good job on that. Well, you know, another thing I should point out about that was that I actually stopped them from rolling. I never told this thing because they were asking these questions I, I call them loaded questions they try to get you to answer in a certain way right and, and they were things like well Yoko Ono did this and and John didn't stop her and all there were all these things that were just the questions were loaded with false information and right. I said let's stop here I said if you want me on this documentary and you want the truth then you know, let me sit down with the director and work out the correct questions or or explain to him why this question isn't even appropriate. Right. It's not factually correct. Right. And so they were like, oh, yeah, we want to do it right. You know, and a lot, of the, a lot of those shows, sometimes the people coming up with questions are, you know, right out of college. And all they do is they go to Wikipedia or something like something like that without fact checking. And that's how you get those mistakes. So I'm glad that they at least allowed me to sort of shut everything down, take an hour <laughs> to, you know, get things right. And because I didn't want the John Lennon documentary that I'm in to be right. filled with, you know, erroneous information. Right. It, it was excellent, really excellent. And your book on Jimmy Nickel, <laughs> you know how much I appreciate all the hard work that you did on that for when I was working on volume four, I, I think every chapter for about 40 pages says, I couldn't have done this without Jim Birkenstead. I couldn't. Do so uh, you not only talked about Jimmy, but you are one of only two books written that covers that tour in Australia and what happened. And it, it was an unresearched area. So thank you very, very much. Oh, you're welcome. I'm, I'm glad that it helped you with your, your book and your John Lennon series. I mean, we're all waiting with bated breath to get to you know, 1980. <laughs> uh, they'll have to wheel me to the to the <laughs> point by then but i'm gonna do it i'm gonna finish it well jim 
But one quick question before we get to our first really planned question. Tell us about your um, cover artist because we didn't ask that and she's phenomenal. Oh, she is. Her name is Zena and she lives in London. And I first discovered her maybe two, three years ago on Instagram where I, I appear and I, you know, I like to put up interesting old rock and roll photos of not just the Beatles, but other rock bands and things. And I came across her artwork and I was blown away by, by the passion that you can see in the work. And, and the part of the cover is, is behind me in this picture. So you can see some of it yourself. And what she does is really cool. Like she gets the whole room where she does the work into a mood. You know, she, she sets the lighting a certain way. She has the easel up and, and then she puts on the music of the classic rock artist that she's painting. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times she'll film herself painting these particular things. So you can actually see the whole creative evolution. And it just, it's, I just think it's so amazing and beautiful. So when we were talking over what, what the cover should be, her uh, beautiful paintings came to mind and I approached her via Instagram and, and she said, yeah, that would be great. I, you know, and she'd never been in, a, in that position before to be on a book. And so I'm really glad to be able to share her beautiful work with yeah. other people. And uh, to those of you who are listening, who will be at the Fest for Beetle fans, Zena is flying over from London and will sign copies of the book. Now you guys will want to come, right? To the uh, I already want to. <laughs> and she's going to you know, bring some of her artwork as well so that people can uh, see it and buy it. And she'll be signing art with me at the... Wow. At the well, you'll have to FaceTime us with when you're there with her so we can if, see her. Or afterwards or while we're at the booth. Yes. If you do it at the bar afterwards, I'm going to just cry my eyes out. <laughs> we could have like a virtual cocktail with you. Absolutely. That, yes. would be, that would be phenomenal. Phenomenal. All right. Mysteries in the music. Case closed. Um, you know, every time that I'm around a group of people who are not Beatles fans, there are two things that they know about the Beatles. One, didn't that John Lennon say horrible things about... Christianity. And then two, didn't the Beatles inspire Charles Manson or incite Charles Manson to commit the Sharon Tate LaBianca murders? And I'm always having to say, well, no, that's just a rumor, blah, blah, blah. But I didn't know why. So can, yeah. I know you don't want to reveal the whole thing, but can you kind of lead us down a path toward the answer? On the, the Beatles? Charles and, Manson. Yeah. yeah. Um, that particular chapter is actually called, Did the Beach Boys Steal a Song from Charles Manson? Yeah. However, it became important and relevant to discuss not only the Beach Boys and their relationship with him, as well as Terry Melcher, who was the Birds producer and Doris Day's son. It was important to, to talk about whether any of his actions you know, were responsible or connected to Manson. And of course, finally, uh, whether the Beatles' music, which Manson claimed, you know, was talking to him, Helter Skelter, 
Piggies. Uh, I can't remember what the third one was, but there's another song of the Beatles from the White Album. And he, you know, Manson was taking so much acid, according to the the people who were in his, you know, cult family, and they they have talked about it. And so I was able to dig into their interviews, and they, you know, they said it just got more and more where we every night we were all doing just tons of acid, and and so. Uh, you know, I don't think, I think that he had been to L.A. before the murder started and he saw that there were some race riots in L.A. and such. Um, and it just got all twisted in his mind that the, that the the black people in America were going to have a revolution, kill all the white people. And in Manson's head, he and his family would come out from under a rock in the desert and and then be the leader of the black people. It turns out he was an incredibly racist person. Uh, maybe that came from being in prison for a long time. I don't know what it came from, but um, certainly I also found quotes from the Beatles themselves addressing Manson's claims. And, you know, the thing that we all should remember is when a person writes a song, it's a very personal thing and they develop the lyrics and, they know where the story in their song came from. And then when other people who are either imbalanced from a mental health standpoint or drugs or, or everything, all of the above, listen to something that strikes them, they sometimes have a completely different and twisted interpretation of these things. Uh, I did find that Manson actually tried to call the Beatles and uh, uh, Derek Taylor intercepted the call because I talked to Derek about it in the mid nineties. And he of course did not, he didn't know who Manson was at the time. And it was before the murders and such, but he, you know, imagine how many kooks call Apple every day back in those days, 68, 69, Oh, yeah, I need to talk to one of the Beatles or maybe all four. Oh, okay, we'll stop what we're doing and, and get them on the phone with you. So this was just another crackpot, according to Derek. And so he he just didn't accept, he hung up the phone, didn't accept the call. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think about that poor lost soul in the Imagine film who shows up at John's house. Right. Knocks on the door and says, you know, John's nice to him. He's really nice to him. But he says, you know, man, how did you know me? How did you write those songs about me? And John's like, I'm not writing about you. I'm writing about me. But well, he, that, that same young man asked him about a song and John says, well, Paul wrote that. <laughs> I didn't even write that. <laughs> but yeah, oh, believe it or not, there actually somebody's making a documentary about that young man. Really? Yeah, I, I can't recall the name of it, but I saw something uh, on Facebook somewhere and they said, yeah, we're making this documentary about that young man who came to John's house that we mm -hmm. see in the Imagine. You know, everybody's supposed to get 15 minutes of fame, but if you talk to John Lennon, it can only be three minutes <laughs> and you still get a movie. <laughs> Just three, right. three minutes. Well, three okay, minutes. So another mystery that you... And it's the first one in the book, and rightly so, because it's E. 
you talk about how Elvis was discovered at Sun Records. And I think this is one of the mysteries that people whispered about for a long time, but they were afraid to say anything out loud that maybe, just maybe, Sam Phillips wasn't the one who discovered him. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so about 15 years ago, I spent really three years and many, many hours on the telephone with Scotty Moore, who was uh, Elvis Presley's first lead guitarist and his first manager, in fact. And uh, he's a very, he was like honest as the day is long. He's passed away now. And he just didn't pull any punches. So one of the things, one of the many things from those hours of conversation that I found very interesting was that Scotty didn't like the fact that Sam Phillips had always taken all the credit for discovering Elvis Presley. And while I think everyone would agree that Phillips does deserve some credit, some of the credit for helping launch Elvis, many people don't know that he didn't deserve sole credit. And so I wanted to really dig deep into that story and explore it. Um, Scotty mentioned uh, Marion Keisker, who was a, an assistant at, of Sam Phillips at Sun Records, but she was way more than that. She was a pioneering woman in, the, in radio with her own show. She, she knew how to be an audio engineer. And really, she was truly one of the first successful female DJs and recording engineers in American history. Oh, wow. So she wasn't just, you know, a, a gal with a typewriter as they were, as many were back then. And the other thing she was quite good at was listening to musicians and singers and evaluating them and then giving her advice to Sam. So this led me to dig into Sam Phillips' uh, interviews over the years where he did take sole credit. And as a former litigator, I began to dig into his alleged facts because I had an eye towards basically cross-examining him in the book, in this chapter, which, as you know from reading it, I do. And it's as if I were in a court of law. So what I found was something that's very typical of someone when they go to spin a story they create new facts or new accounts of what they say happened. And in this case, I found that to be that Sam Phillips created new uh, accounts of things in an effort to discount uh, the significant contributions of other people. And I was able in this chapter, I believe, to impeach his credibility and discover at the same time compelling, compelling evidence to support the conclusion that not one, not two, but three people deserve, three additional people deserve credit uh, for helping discover Elvis Presley and helping him get a, get a start. And I'll leave it to the readers to see the results of that investigation and then they can make up their own mind. Yeah, that's kind of like that old John Donne quote, no man is an island to himself. You know, it always takes more than one person to do anything. And you know, but that, that was one of my very favorite chapters. But my favorite chapter, because I am a 90s chick. I love the 90s. My son Cliff and my daughter Paige were growing up during the 90s. That was the music that was playing in our house all the time. 
and I just love 90s music. And you've actually done a whole book on Nirvana's Nevermind. Uh, and so it, it figures, of course, that you would dig into the mysteries in the Nevermind LP and also in the accompanying video for Smells Like Teen Spirit, which is, at the time I saw it, I didn't really pay it. I just thought, this is a really disturbing video. And I, what is this janitor, at the, this the these band cheerleaders and the flailing kids? And I hope my son doesn't go to anything like this, but he probably does. And I did not really understand all of the mysteries embedded in the LP and in the songs and in the videos. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, it's funny because uh, I think the nickname for that video was the pep rally from hell. Really? Yeah, because that's really kind of what it looks like, especially the first time you see it. It's yeah. rather overwhelming. But um, it's fascinating, first of all, to me, and interesting to me, because, you know, we've known each other for years and I never knew that you liked Nirvana and Nevermind and that you were a fan of the music in the 90s. And you know, we had grown up before that, and now we were, you and I, we, all three of us here, we were all adults by then, and yet um, it was my connection to Butch Vig, who was in this town, that that caused me to, to suddenly enjoy all this rock music that, that came in the 1990s. Um, the Nevermind album was interesting because it was a new sound, a new direction in music, and the album toppled Michael Jackson's pop music from number one on the Billboard charts. And it sort of sounded a death knoll for the big haired heavy metal music that had been popular at that time. So it ushered in a new sound that uh, we now all call either alternative rock or grunge. So Butch Vig, who I said is a longtime friend of mine, he produced the album, so I had a lot of insight into the making of the album from him. And uh, in fact, I should mention that Butch Vig, I'm honored by this, that he uh, wrote the foreword for my new book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. But over the years, and uh, I'll sort of lean into the Beatle aspect of that chapter, um, there are many different mysteries in it, but for your audience, um, many questions have arisen over the years. Some are like, well, why was the album recorded twice? What was the story behind the title? Uh, what about that track that's sort of buried and hidden at the end of the CD? Uh, but to, to me, most importantly, was how did the Beatles influence the music on Nevermind? And of course, um, what's the deal with the baby on the cover? That was another question. But um, one of the interesting things that came up was that Kurt Cobain, many people don't know, he was a huge Beatle fan, and he, he had listened to his uncle's record collection, which had all of the staple Beatle albums at the time, while he was growing up. And although Cobain's songs were very loud and grungy and powerful, it was the songwriting of the Beatles that really helped him craft songs that are now quite memorable. And on one occasion, uh, I'll share with you that's in the, in the book, uh, Kurt Cobain sat down as a, as a young man, he's a very teenager, and he listened to Meet the Beatles, the album, over and over for three straight hours. And uh, then wrote his, one of his first compositions called About a Girl. 
after, you know, letting all of that Beatle music and songwriting expertise sink in. Uh, on another occasion, and this one uh, definitely made me laugh, uh, again, producer Butch Vig was trying to get Kurt Cobain to double track his vocals on the Nevermind album. And Kurt resisted this because he thought it was, uh, he thought it sounded fake and artificial. And, you know, he came from that punk ethic where you just do it once, it's sloppy and you go, we're done. Uh, but, but Butch Vig wanted it to sound a little more polished. So he said, uh, when Kurt said, I'm not going to double track my vocals, Butch said, well, John Lennon double tracked his vocals. <laughs> and then Butch, Butch said, as soon as I said that, Kurt said, okay. And then but, uh, he pretty much double-tracked all the vocals after that. So again, wow. the magic of John Lennon continued. So I, I also think that, that had Kurt Cobain lived, he would have joined uh, Dave Grohl and Chris Novoselic uh, when they jammed on that song, Cut Me Some Slack, that they recorded with Paul McCartney many years later. And people may know or may not know at this point, but McCartney loved Nirvana. He's always had great positive comments about them. And so I think that Nirvana and the Beatles, I've heard from Dave Grohl too, they just had a kind of a mutual admiration for each other. Yeah, and you're telling, because I've read that chapter a couple of times, you're telling only like this much of what's in that chapter. So right. you guys out there, you definitely want to get this book because there's so much more. And I get ready to turn it over to Lena, but I want to just ask you one more question. Do you know Dave Grohl? I don't know Dave Grohl personally. We, we sort of know about each other because we both are mutual friends with, with Butch. And whenever they do these, um, never mind. The two of them do these things on Sirius. Uh, <laughs> Never mind anniversary shows on Sirius. And Butch always says, yep, Dave and I are reading your book, Never Mind Nirvana, again, so that we remember everything we need to do so that we can tell you on the album. I mean, if you think about it, they both worked on so many albums over the years. Um, but... I guess it's nice to have all that information in one place. So I'm sure Dave knows who I am. And I, I've heard of Dave. I've seen Dave. <laughs> well, you tell him that Lena will send him every cookbook at her arsenal. If he will just give a short video call to Lena. <laughs> That's all we ask. <laughs> I, have, I have a recipe named for Dave Grohl. It's called Dave Grohlicious. Oh, that's interesting. Well, maybe what I should do is send him a book and you send me your uh, your girlicious thing and I'll put that in with my letter to him. Absolutely. It, it also has a, there's also a story about my incident with Dave Grohl at a concert. <laughs> you got to buy the book to read it. Though. All which right. Is that, Lena? Which one is that? The original? The original. The original. And, um, I don't remember reading it in the Rolling Stone one. Rolling Scone. <laughs> the Rolling Scones. Rolling Scones. Elena, <laughs> I turn it over. Okay. okay, Jim. So your book has given me a refreshed sense of wonder and fascination in the world of rock and roll. When I was reading it, I was like, oh, this is what I needed. I've, I'm 
I'm overworked and I don't get to read anything enjoyable. And when I was reading it, I'm like, oh, I didn't know anything about this story. This is great stuff, you know? Um, and so I, I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, it's in, it's comprised of so much data that it makes my head spin to think of how many years it took you to collect all of this. So I appreciate, and I also appreciate you mentioning us in the acknowledgement. Yes, thank you very, 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 very much. Yeah. yeah, that was very special, right under Ty Taylor Hawkins. Oh, yeah. So Ooh, I'm sure you're in love with him, too. <laughs> yeah, he's he's a distant second. He, yeah. I like drummers, but but Dave's the ultimate drummer. Okay. So, <laughs> and you know, Lena's a drummer. I don't know if you know that. No, yeah. I didn't. Yeah, I am. Wow, you're a grunge yeah. fan, and she's a drummer. I'm I'm blown away. I'm learning all this new stuff about. <laughs> yeah, we have. You, you just don't know what you're going to find out about us. And this well, is I'm without a player, so uh, we can all jam. We can uh, Jude. Right. You play cowbell, Jude. Oh, no, but I'm a heck of a dancer. Yes, right. she is. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> yes, if, if any drummer falls over dead at a concert, I can keep time. Um, That's so really cool. You know, one time I was at a, a blues show, one of these original Queen of the Blues, Coco Taylor in Chicago, and the, her drummer got so drunk he couldn't play. And it was a small little blues club. And, and I'm like, oh, I wish I could play drums. I would go. <laughs> so she got up and said, is anybody out in the audience? The audience is like 30 people play drums. I need a drummer right now. And there's this guy all the way in the back, just leaning against the wall, drinking a beer. And he goes, yeah, I'll do it. And he was great. But, but <laughs> that's, that a good, that's a good tool to be able to play drums and if something happens you're you're on absolutely drummer's the most important uh part of the band i have to say right. except for the rhythm guitarist <laughs> <laughs> there's some john lennon bias in there <laughs> right right well i love reading and all of your mentions of the celebrities that you interview in all of these mysteries. So who was the favorite celebrity that you interviewed? I know you you had Jan Wenner, Colonel Oliver North, and many others. I bet you're going to say Jim Keltner, because I did ask you this question years ago, and I know that you love him. Well, First of all, I want to thank you for all your, your kind words about the book. I'm so glad you liked it. And, you know, I've heard from people who've now read the book and they've said, you know, we're all so upset about Russia and Ukraine and, and the war. And, you know, every time we turn on the TV, we are all dealing with that and we all feel terrible about that. And this, these people say, you know, at least we have the ability to just open your book at the end of the night and read it and enjoy it and br it brings back memories and things. So, uh, you know, I'm glad I can be a happy distraction from an otherwise crazy world that we all live in. But I um, do put a lot of data and facts and pictures into my books because mm -hmm. I want to appeal not just to the casual fans, but also to the hardcore fans and, and try to strike a happy medium. But then I, I also um, write the book so that it reads like a novel. So it's not just a dry 
set of here, this is what happened and this is what happened. Cause I don't think any of us really enjoy those type of books. So I, I do try to write it like a, uh, in this case, each story, like a, a mystery, a mystery story. But yes, I love my pal Jim Keltner, but I know I'm not allowed to pick him as my favorite interview. But I would say that out of all the interviews, the person that I found quite interesting and was not the easiest to find was Greg Jacobson. And he was in the chapter of the Beach Boys and Charlie Manson, and he was a close friend of Dennis Wilson's. And he was the whole there the whole time that Charles Manson was living at Dennis Wilson's house. And so I found that Greg recorded uh, Charles Manson several times and was present when the alleged transaction took place between uh, Dennis Wilson and Charles Manson for a song that Manson had written called Cease to Exist. But... Jacobson was the hardest person of all the interviews to locate. He wasn't the hardest to convince to talk to, but he was the hardest to locate. Uh, he had vanished uh, after the whole Manson trial and he had gotten out of that area, the LA area. But I found on Google that he had created a posthumous Dennis Wilson solo album. And it said on there that he had hired Taylor Hawkins, there's that name again, to uh, play some drums on one track. You know, maybe Dennis hadn't played the, finished that track or something. So he had Taylor Hawkins play it. So I called Butch Fig, who had produced the Foo Fighters, and said, Butch, I can't solve this mystery unless I find the last living eyewitness to the transaction between Manson and Dennis Wilson. I said, can you ask Taylor Hawkins for Greg's phone number? And five minutes later, Butch called me back with the phone number, and I was on the phone with Greg. And the things he told me, you know, I, I pretty much threw everything in the book. It's pretty mind-blowing what it was like to deal with Charles Manson, because at first he was just thought, thought of in this circle of musicians that sort of brought him in. He was thought of as just like this sort of silly, giggly, hippie guru guy. But then he turned into a gurusome human yeah. being and, and really flipped out. And so he's, Greg is the only person who is in the room with Charles Manson and Dennis Wilson. And when you have a legal issue, like did someone steal a copyright, you need to know as many of the facts as you can. And you want someone who's an independent witness. Greg Jacobson did not have any financial interest in the outcome of that question. He wasn't involved on either side of the transaction. He's just a guy in the room. And he's a very astute individual, uh, very um, excellent memory. You could just tell by the details. And uh, so once you have those facts and the other facts that I gathered, then I can apply the law, which by the way, was the 1906 copyright law that controlled this particular issue um, and get to a conclusion for the, uh, for the readers. But um, the other thing that's kind of cool is Greg took a photograph, uh, which is probably the only one in existence of, Ch of Charlie Manson living in Dennis Wilson's home. And it's a picture of him sitting in a windowsill 
playing guitar and he was kind enough to let me use that in the book so readers will see that. But it's interesting, many people say, oh, I know that story, I know what it's about. Well, you may have heard the story, but that's only half the tale. Yeah, they, when they did that special that Ivor was on last year, they got to that part and they showed, you know, the house and all that, but then they kind of just skimmed over what really happened because at that point you hadn't even done that investigation yet. I don't think anybody knew what really happened. Actually, I had concluded the investigation. I just hadn't published the book, but I, I know what you're talking about and yeah. I've documentary, yeah. But I, you know, that's what you do when you're filming or even writing and you don't, you know, I put case closed on my book, which means I have to solve the mystery or else it can't get published in my, in my mind. So, but a lot of documentaries, a lot of TV shows, you know, look at that one called Unsolved Mysteries. Oh, here's this mystery and it's a commercial. They, they don't, they don't solve the mystery. They just tell you about the mystery. <laughs> But I wanted to do something different and create a niche where I, I actually let you know, here's the whole story, here's the whole backstory, and here's what I concluded based on my, you know, legal background and, and historical music background. And let me hasten to say, I was not in any way dissing Ira because that wasn't his part of the show. The right. stuff that he talked about were the Sharon Tate LaBianca murders, and he is spot on the man. On that whole thing. He knew he was ahead of the prosecutors, the police. He really did a great piece of journalism there. He did. Five to Die, and then later, I think two years ago, Manson Exposed. Great, great work. Yeah. Absolutely. You know what? Uh, in the words of the song that's the center of my chapter, he ceased to exist. Yeah. That was the name of the song, Ceased to Exist. Yeah. Bye bye. Good one. Excellent. Well, I think that all of the background work that you did on this book could be another book in itself. So, but we'll, we'll let you get to that later. But I wanted to delve into a chapter that was well buried in the middle of the book called, it was titled, Whatever Will Bury Will Bury. You explained so much about the clandestine activity of these rock legends and how it formed rock and roll's most beloved and most genuine supergroup. Tell us why you wanted to write a chapter about the mysteries of the traveling Wilburys. Well, I think that the Wilburys chapter was a real favorite for me too um, to write. I loved the idea of the traveling Wilburys recording in secret. You know, they didn't go to a studio where word of it would have leaked out and pressure would have been put on them. It was a, you know, it, the first one was at Dave Stewart's home. So it was, it was just very secretive. And creating a fictional family, funny names on their guitar picks, the whole mythology of it was really interesting to me. And I wanted to delve into, into that and help people understand how all of that backstory took place, how the mythology developed, mostly through George Harrison and some of his friends and why the group was so special. In fact, uh, they're the only super group that I've documented that never broke up. Think about all the super groups, you know, they all eventually broke up. All, yeah, I mean, even, um, even now Crosby, Stills and Nash won't deal with 
Graham Nash or with uh, yeah. David Crosby anymore. So, oh. but also I had the great honor and pleasure, as you know, for of, of working for George Harrison and his family, and, and now his son. And I love them, and I I wanted to honor uh, George's great creation and those two wonderful albums, as well as I've been fascinated by the concept of artists using pseudonyms over the years for different reasons. And so I felt that the Wilburys were a great springboard for that topic as well. It was great. Um, it was very endearing. And um, I, love, I love how you molded the whole, the whole story together because we do love all of those musicians and um, and the story behind all of it is is fascinating and um, just terrific. So do you, uh, would, who would be, <clears throat> excuse me, who would be your favorite Wilbury? Well, I, I think you told me, you sent me an email <laughs> saying I can't choose Jim Keltner, <laughs> who uh, was dubbed Buster Wilbury. <laughs> by George Harrison. So I think that I would choose Nelson Wilbury, who uh, was George Harrison, as my favorite Wilbury. And a, a close second would be Lefty Wilbury, which was Roy Orbison. He, he would yeah. be a close yeah. second. Yeah, just such, um, a, such a great point in time when all of that came together. And um, <clears throat> they truly are a band of brothers. Right. I don't want to interrupt you, but I just remembered that somewhere in the chapter two, George Harrison is asked, you know, well, who could be a, a Wilbury? And he gives an example of someone who could be a Wilbury. And then, and then he says, Hall and Oates, not Wilbury. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah. No, John. Yeah. No, with the other guy's name. Daryl, yeah. no, uh, yeah, no yacht rock. I think there were a couple others where he said so and so could be a Wilbury, but not this person. But I remember <laughs> <all those. laughs> yeah, that was great. That was great. Yeah, and I love the sense of humor that you carry throughout the chapter too. It's spot on. But um, so since I was born in 1966, I wasn't really old enough to be exposed to the music of Bob Marley and only came to appreciate him in recent years. I was shocked and surprised by your chapter on Bob Marley and the incredible political drama that was behind the attack on his life and his eventual death. So can you briefly fill us in on the conspiracy behind Bob Marley's death and give us a clue or two to um, what you expose? Sure. But first of all, I thought you were born in 1986. Oh, Jim. <laughs> that was me. <laughs> oh, that was you. Yes, I thought you were yes. both born in 1986. For a mineral called bauxite that was used to manufacture aluminum. And by then, Jamaica had gotten a new prime minister and he was moving towards socialism and he was hanging out with Castro. And that made the United States nervous. 
because we were still in a Cold War with Russia, which I understand we're returning to that Cold War now. Or maybe and not so cold. Maybe not, yeah. Maybe it's a hot war. Uh, but also, <clears throat> it was still not that long before that everyone living then uh, remembered the Cuban Missile Crisis, where Russia put their missiles on Cuba, pointing at us. So we didn't want Jamaica to fall into socialism and communism for that reason. So at the time, our CIA pretty much was doing whatever they wanted to do anywhere in the world, and they were known for foreign assassinations at that time. However, that eventually changed where laws were passed to prevent that. But uh, Bob Marley got caught up in this messy political campaign because uh, the United States wanted to unseat the socialist prime minister. And the United States was supporting a conservative candidate. And what happened was Jamaica divided into sort of two gangs, the conservatives and the socialists. And they were literally, you know, there was violence. They were literally hurting each other, killing each other. And the CIA apparently, you know, brought machine guns to the island and all these things that had never been there before. And Bob Marley just wanted to set up a peaceful concert to bring both sides together. And the concert was going to be called Smile Jamaica. So just so the CIA, by the way, was sent there and they were disguised as diplomats. But in fact, they were later outed as CIA. And uh, two days before the concert, gunmen stormed into Bob Marley's house where he had been rehearsing with the Whalers. They uh, shot his wife, Rita, in the back of the head. Luckily, she survived. She was actually driving away at the time. And then they shot uh, Bob's manager five times in the back. He had to be flown to Miami and he survived. Bob just stood there and didn't move and was shot and a bullet grazed his chest and lodged into his elbow. And it could never be taken out because uh, it might have caused nerve damage and he wouldn't have been able to play guitar. So he left it in there. Uh, then, you know, so he was hiding out and then all types of rumors and conspiracies started as a result of that, as, as things do when a, a prominent person is either killed or someone attempts to kill them. And so the question was, did the CIA agents that were posing as diplomats try to kill Marley? So I dug in and found the original classified CIA documents, the presidential briefings that Gerald Ford would see every day, anything that had to do with Bob Marley in Jamaica. Then I also located one of these phony diplomats who was actually the CIA agent in charge in Jamaica and uh, got him to dish on what went down in Jamaica. And then I also spoke to Lieutenant Colonel Oliver North, who had interviewed President Ford uh, about what happened in Jamaica, not because of me, because Ford had already passed on, but <clears throat> because... When Oliver North took over as security, was his security council, head of the security council, it was under the Reagan administration. And typically when you enter a new position in, in your party's administration, you go back to 
the people in your party the last time they were in power. So he skipped over the Jimmy Carter administration and sat down with Gerald Ford. And that's why he I happened to find him and he happened to have this information. I also interviewed Jeff Walker, who was a PR man for Island Records, who was with Bob Marley almost the entire time around the shooting and, and certainly after when he was hiding out. Uh, I delve into the controversy and conspiracy about the son of the director of the CIA, who just happened to be the cameraman for this concert. So, of course, that would um, cause people to raise an eyebrow about conspiracy theories. Uh, and I detail his involvement in Jamaica with the Marley group and his whole backstory. So it's just filled with intrigue. And it's really, to me, it was a very interesting chapter uh, to study. I think people will love it. You know, you don't even have to be a Bob Marley fan to love this chapter. Right. Yes. It's lots of palace intrigue and even um, intrigue of medical um, proportions too. Oh, exactly. <laughs> so, so yes, it's, it's quite entertaining. I enjoyed it. So, okay. So the next question I wanted to ask you about, and again, I wasn't born yet when the outrage. Neither was, was I. Right. That's right. <laughs> so there I was, was. <laughs> all the outrage by the suits and the G-men in the late in late 63, early 64, when the public heard the song Louie Louie. Right. The whole, this whole mystery and the facts behind the story are something out of an episode of a dark comedy. Everyone knows the Kingsman song and has sung it at parties all over the country or the world. But supposedly there are some very dark hidden meanings uttered on the recording of this song. Things that actually threatened the U.S. government. So give us a quick. <laughs> Give us a quick snippet of the lowdown on this horrid threat to the American way of life and to all of the innocent children in our country. Well, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was quite the character, and that's putting it generously. And he, you know, he thought that comic books, rock and roll music, you know, anything that teenagers liked was awful and he considered the Kingsmen merchants of filth. <laughs> and before they had even done any investigating, he had heard about these dirty lyrics to the song and he had already made up his mind that that must be true without them even starting the investigation. But, and you know, I should point out too that this story, there've been two or three books written about this, but no one ever dug into the day-to-day -day behind the scenes investigation by the FBI. And it is a dark comedy because they, are, they were and perhaps still are the keystone cops of national police in our country. <clears throat> so um, what's interesting is reaching a conclusion before an investigation begins. And the governor of your state, Lena, Indiana, he uh, never compared <laughs> the actual published lyrics to the recording. So in other words, when the lyrics are written to a song, they're published and they're the, there's an official copy. He listened to some 
high school kids' lyrics or read them and listened to the song and concluded obscenity, we must take this off the air, which he forgot about the First Amendment. Oh, and by the way, he forgot to mention this embarrassing incident in his memoirs. But, <laughs> but uh, the whole thing was really a witch hunt. Uh, the band, the, the, I, go, I take people inside the actual studio recording of what went on. Uh, I knew one of the people that was credited with producing the song. Uh, I interviewed the lead singer who actually sings those lyrics before he died. And um, it's something, believe it or not, that the Keystone Cops, I mean, the FBI, never interviewed this guy. Ne I mean, hello, it's an investigation. Let's look at high school lyrics. Or should we talk to the guy that actually sang the song? Right. So that's pretty funny. And I guess I calculated that it took, I don't know, two, three years. And in today's money, 62 million taxpayer dollars to investigate uh, something that, you know, just wasn't there. But yeah. I point out the darkly comical inadequacies of the investigation. And I think people will get a lot of laughs out of yeah. some sarcasm in my right dripping from my words. <laughs> Absolutely. It is, I'm telling you, this book was a real eye-opener in a lot of instances. I mean, from page one on, and definitely, as Lena said, you could write a book about how you tracked all this down, you know, how the pieces came together. I mean, that's a book in itself. So Yeah, well, you know, I sometimes, well, I, to, even tonight, I've shared some of those things where, yeah. like, how, how did I find Greg Jacobson, right. you know? I didn't know who the Foo Fighters were and I didn't know which big, I still would be looking for Greg Jacobson. Yeah. You know, yeah. not in, in a place you'd think to find it. You know, he's he's not right. easily findable. Yeah, it's that it's just amazing. I don't know how much time I've just been trying to track down an article about John Lennon written by Ivor's wife, who was also a noted journalist. And he told me about the article, but he doesn't know where to find it. And Susie Duchateau, who helps me do research, and I've been looking for it for two months. So to actually find someone who's off the radar, you yeah. really put the time into this book. And yeah, there were like that. It took a long time, for example, to find these a CIA agent who had been down there when these, you know, attempts on Marley took place. And uh, that was a to me, that was a major coup. And I remember when I called him up and I said, hey, it's Jim Birkenstadt, the rock and roll detective. <laughs> He's like this retired CIA agent. And he says, to what do I owe this wonderful this <laughs> about? And I said, uh, well, you were the attache to the ambassador in Jamaica in 1976. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he said, yeah, I was. And I said, but weren't you also the CIA chief of staff down there at the same time? And he started laughing. And, you know, he said, well, how do I answer that without getting in trouble? And I said, well, you're not, you're not with the uh, CIA anymore. He goes, oh, you're always with the CIA. I said, well, I think your laughing answered the question for me. Yeah. And then yeah. we moved from there. Exactly, exactly. Well, because of the hard work that you did, you can always tell when someone puts the time in. 
and you can tell when someone doesn't put the time in. And you have already gone to bestseller in the mysteries division of Amazon. And the book has been out, what, like two weeks? Two weeks, maybe, yeah. And you're a bestseller on Amazon. So I, I feel so grateful and appreciative. I, I can't believe it. Well, we congratulate you and we're so proud of you. Thank you. Yeah. I was a bestseller before anybody had received a book. Yeah. It was crazy. Well, that's leaning upon your past reputation in the Jimmy Nickel book. So, I mean, it's, you know, that's, it's a huge compliment. We're really, really proud. So tell people how they can get their copy of the book and how they can also follow you on social media. Okay. Well, the book, of course, is available at uh, Amazon.com and they're shipping. It's also available at retail at Walmarts, Barnes and Nobles, and, and you can order it at, at other, like your local bookstores. Uh, readers can follow me on Facebook by searching for my name, Jim Birkenstadt. And also I have a Facebook page called Rock and Roll Detective. I'm on Instagram as at Rock and Roll Detective. I'm on Twitter as at Rock Detective. If you want a free excerpt of the book, you can go to my author site, which is uh, 3w's.musicmysterybook.com. Oh, also, you mentioned Spotify earlier, Lena. And if people want, once they get the book, if they want to hear all the key songs in the whole book, I created a Spotify list of all those tracks. And you just type in the name of the book, Mysteries in the Music, Case Closed. And it's about two CDs worth of music that would take a long time to track down, but you can listen to any song you read about in the book. That's uh, awesome. That is awesome. I'm going to be at the, I mentioned the Fest for Beatle fans, April 1 through 3, and Zena will be there. And, you know, I just really appreciate you having me on because we always have a lot of fun when we're together. We are the three musketeers. Yeah. We absolutely are. The two absolutely. fun musketeers and then the take me back to the lecture musketeer. <laughs> <laughs> now, what was that all about? I'm a rule follower. <laughs> he does not break any rules. That is for sure. Uh, but the two other ones here do. Yeah. I'm just, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I got the lawyer. So, you know. <laughs> Well played innocent. That's right. That's right. So, well, thank you so much, Jim, for taking your time to come in and chat with us and, and visit about the book. Even if we aren't talking about Beatles or politics or rock and roll, we love talking about anything with you, but uh, you are our most favorite detective of all time. Oh, so... You will be at the Best for Beatles fans in Jersey City, April 1st through the 3rd. And you're going to be giving presentations about your book, I'm sure. I believe so, yeah. Awesome. That is terrific. I'm sorry that we won't be there, but we will FaceTime and get a load of what you're doing and, um, and meet Zena as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Jim. We really love having you here always. Thank you for having me on. It's quite the honor. And it's Jim Birkenstadt, by the way, not Birkenstadt. But Ryan and I were discussing in this room where A-L-E-X-A happens to habitate, 
that that was the way that she pronounced your name. And all of a sudden she volunteers. I do the best I can. I'm learning new pronunciations all the time. <laughs> well, who knows if she'll ever be in the Three Musketeers now. <laughs> no, no, she will not. She will Jim not. Mysteries in the music. Get out there and get it, guys. We love it. Thank you so much, Jim. We love you. Thanks a lot. Love you guys too. So sadly, that's all the time that we have for today. But what a joy for us to share time with our buddy, Jim Birkenstock. Always so, so much fun. Now, in two weeks, we will be back again right before the Fest for Beatles fans. And we'll be here to chat, be here to chat with Dr. Bob Hieronymus and Laura Kortner about their book, Yellow Submarine. It's all in the mind. So Bob and Laura will be the speakers at, will be speaking at the fest as well. And we're happy to give you a glimpse of their book and preview their speaking engagements at the fest for Beatles fans. And I think we'll have some surprise guests as well. You'll have we to do. Tune in. We're working right now to get some other people who will be um, having their books there for the very first time, some newbies to the fest to highlight them so that people know to look for them. Because I remember what it was like to be a newbie when no people would come up and say, we don't know who you are. So we're going to try to introduce them on the show as well. Excellent. So mark your calendar for Tuesday, March 22nd at 6 p.m. We will meet the authors. And until then, happy St. Patty's Day. Here's to food for thought, food for the soul, and food for the love of rock and roll. And my Irish blessing to all of you is, may those who love us, love us. Those that don't, may God turn their hearts. And if he doesn't turn their hearts, may he turn their ankles so that we will know them by their limp. <laughs> Ta-ra and shine.